0: We are back again with Jyoti Bra here to talk about the uh, world anti-imperialist platform. Uh, Jyoti's recently been in South Korea or fake Korea, depending upon which nomenclature you want to use. And uh, there was a meeting of the platform there, and she has obviously joined us before to talk about the meeting in Venezuela. So Jyoti, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Alex.
0: And the question of Korea, North and South, and the drive to uh, provocation and war by US imperialism against the DPRK is obviously a big one concerning anybody who's following uh, the global shifts and changes that are going on at the moment Um, first of all what was your impression of um, South Korea and what was your experience of uh, meeting the comrades there and um, what what did you experience whilst you were out there
1: a big question Um, so a lot of different things I noticed in South Korea I mean on the one hand you sort of see like anywhere there's a sense of you know on the surface calm and order and things carrying on in the usual way despite the fact that as we know the war tensions uh, are being ratcheted up uh, on the Korean Peninsula to a most uh, really frenzied height and they have a um, they've switched you know from from a moderately repressive to a very fascistically repressive regime and that's obviously having its effect we saw um where there's a the, some of the evidence of, of poverty of Korean workers we saw in the queues uh there's a temple in the center of Seoul uh where they give out free food and the and the queues, to access that food are are very, very long indeed. And that's always a sign that the the economy is taking a nosedive, just like we're seeing food bank use all over Europe. Um, What I found interesting was meeting the comrades of the South Korean revolutionary movement, the comrades of the People's Democracy Party who were hosting us while we were there, um, active in many different spheres. I I met women comrades and working class trade union representatives, uh, I met people who were um, members of peasant organisations, people who were in uh, environmental organisations, people in a community organisations, people in student organisations, um, and all of them were telling me that they feel the kind of revolutionary situation really rapidly maturing at this point. That they, that although everything looks calm on the surface, they feel, you know, in their daily uh, lives and in their political life that uh, things are reaching a very um, explosive moment kind of very soon. They're expecting a kind of revolutionary outbreak and war to come together very soon and, uh, and very decisively. Uh, that's really the, the, the impression I got from talking to to the comrades who were working there. Um, I saw that <laughs> there was a kind of dystopian sense that I got from the city centers um, where there was, or the or the areas of working class housing Um, something it felt like a factory the way they're expected to live because very small apartments in huge tower blocks and the tower blocks are so many and so close together with nothing green around them um, that they literally just have numbers on the side that go up to like past 100 Mm. so you're talking like 100 more than 100 tower blocks all gray all you know totally uniform high next to each other nothing green around you know it's really you know just very factory like dormitory conditions um interestingly you know for a, for a country that's so um where the people are so sort of repressed and pushed down um they still retain certain of their uh cultural uh habits you know that obviously uh, korea has a ex- Ancient culture, the Korean kind of national identity, if you like, not bourgeois national, but you know, kind of cultural identity has goes back for 5,000 years. And uh, as we know, is very common in Eastern cultures, they're very, very clean. So, one thing I particularly was noticeable was you know, bathrooms in public bathrooms where there's nobody seems to be around looking after it, you know, spotlessly clean. Uh, and that's something that you don't often see around the world um and in my experience I've only I've only previously found that in socialist countries so Mm. for me that's clearly a very a very cultural thing that you know people feel the great need to take care of everything you know everybody's meticulous about taking their shoes off when they go into places cleaning up behind themselves so they still have a great kind of you know culturally social conscience uh, that I found you know just quite interesting considering the general level of kind of alienation and degeneration of of the, of the culture because of the conditions they're living in. Uh, we saw a, a statue in one place uh, to a boy who set fire to himself um, as a kind of uh, last desperate act of protest. He was a, only in his uh, very early 20s, I think. He'd worked since a, since a young lad um, with um, textile workers who were mainly women, very young, in incredibly harsh conditions. Um, he had tried, he, he had tried to unionize and then been kicked out. Uh, and in a last attempt to try to draw attention to the horrific working conditions of these super oppressed workers uh, in South Korea, uh, he had immolated himself. And there's a statue to him outside the place where he, where he wo- used to work on the spot, where, where he set fire to himself. And those type of working conditions haven't gone away for the people of South Korea you know it's, it's a country that's always or a, a part of the world that's always held up to us as a kind of you know um a, a model of, of how brilliantly capitalism works you know mm. and that's that's been the attempt of the imperialists to to turn it into a kind of shining shiny you know technological place and certainly you know there's a lot of technology embedded into people's everyday lives um but the the, the standard of living and the poverty that's being endured by people and that you know they're they're really suffering under under the current economic crisis uh has come on top of you know, the last economic crisis never went away. And mm. so you know, standard of living for for ordinary Korean people is is sinking very fast uh, and there's a there's a real sense of desperation amongst a lot of workers there. um I will just come to uh, Guangzhou if I may, because the first half of our trip, To South Korea was to Guangzhou. And many people outside of Korea have never heard of this city, but it's a city that's at the heart of South Korea's independence and uh, liberation and reunification movement. And in 1980, in Guangzhou, there was an armed uprising. Now, most of the people, even in the West, even people who care about revolutionary things, most people don't know about this event. Uh, But there was an armed uprising which spread, started with a student response to uh, a newly fascistic uh, rule in the country uh, that was very, very heavy handed um, and brought in martial law. Uh, But it spread very rapidly across the whole region. Um, and 100,000 people took part in that uprising, which I was like was armed, it wasn't just a, a demonstration, it was an armed uprising, which succeeded in forcing um, the troops uh, of the and all the forces of the state out of the city, uh, and they had for 10 days, they had a, a self-run commune, workers were involved, peasants were involved, not just the students, The whole city became a kind of liberated zone that started to, you know, was holding mass meetings every day and starting to talk about, you know, what were their demands and how could they run their lives and all the rest of it. Uh, It was brutally suppressed, as you can imagine, with the very much under the orders of the US occupiers. Um, And of the hundred thousand people who participated, 5,000 were slaughtered. And there's a, there's a cemetery which for, for the dead which initially was a secret ceremony, uh, um, cemetery. The people had to find and bury their dead in secret. Uh, years later, a, a more reformist government came in, um, and this has been the history of South Korea since, since US occupation in 1945. They sort of flip-flop uh, between different faces of proxy government. So sometimes the the pro- the the, the the proxy government, which is, t- they're all totally loyal to US imperialism and, and really under instruction from US imperialism, but sometimes they look more reformist and sometimes they're just you know, all out fascistic depending on the needs of the times. So under a more uh, reformist government at a certain point, the site was officially adopted by the state, by the city and sort of made nice and now it's a it's a destination for people. But what's really interesting is the legacy, the memory, Uh, of this uprising in Guangzhou means that there's a kind of it's if you like there's something like the Guangzhou rules Um, this legacy can't be ignored or sat upon or denied it's commemorated every year Um, it, it, it broke out on the 18th of May they call it 518 and while we were there it was the week leading up to the commemorations and what that meant The whole city was decked in banners. I mean, I saw a tower block that had a pink 518 banner from the top story down to the ground, a huge banner advertising the commemorations for 518, right? And this at a time when the government is totally fascistic and anti-people and pro-USA, but they can't stop these things. Uh, for fear of the consequences being, you know, it's bad enough that the memory is alive. But if you try and repress too hard in Guangzhou, you don't know what you're playing with. The the revolutionary spirit there is very strong. So it was Guangzhou that the PDP decided was where the platform would be able to hold its uh, mass rally. And in Guangzhou, you can make speeches about reunification and liberation in a way that you can't in Seoul, for example. Mm. So there's a really interesting uh, kind of reality on the ground of what it means when the balance of class forces is such that even the most repressive government has to think twice about what it does in case of backfiring. You know, they're not even the most fascistically brutal regime is not always as strong as it looks when the when the people are also moving and strong. You know so that's a that's a really interesting, I think, practical lesson. You know, uh, we had uh, for example, the Li Jiok, who's the permanent representative of the peace treaty movement, gave a very fiery speech about the DPRK and reunification to our rally, you know, which was in public um in Guangzhou, a beautiful speech, and I would suggest people to go and find it on the World Anti-Imperialist Platform's um uh, YouTube channel. Um But, you know, you couldn't do that in other parts of Korea or South Korea without getting uh, repressed. Uh, But somehow the Guangzhou rules means that you've got a bit more leeway for how you express yourself. Um, A lot of people might not realize there's a there's a law in Korea, uh, in South Korea, called the National Security Law. Incredibly repressive. Again, it's been there since the the U.S. occupiers basically. and brought it in in the earliest days of their occupation. So the USA has been occupying South Korea since 1945, despite the fact that the people of Korea were on the Allied side in World War II. They were the victorious side. They had just succeeded in kicking out their Japanese occupiers who had been occupying Korea since 1910. Right? So they'd had uh, 25 years of quite brutal, or very brutal, Uh, Japanese occupation. They had fought very hard against that. It's 35, isn't it? I can't count. Uh, They had fought very hard against that. There's many heroes of the anti-Japanese liberation struggle. They won. In 1945, The Soviets came into the top half of Korea and the um, Americans came into the bottom half, but it was supposed to be a temporary, you know, we're just helping to make sure the Japanese are really gone. And, you know, we're all on the same side. And in a few years, we'll be gone and you'll be left to run your own affairs. And of course, the Soviets left North Korea, the Americans never left the South, they set up a puppet regime, they enforce the border. It's really interesting how we're always told that. Um, it's the north it's north korea that isolates itself uh which of course couldn't be further from the truth and v- interestingly if you go to the border of north korea and look at it what you will see is the fence is on and the barbed wire and the lookout posts and all that and the militarization is all on the south korean side
2: mm.
1: on the north korean side there is no fence mm. right it's it, there's all kinds of laws against North Korea in the South, that don't exist in the North, that part of the North is concerned. They ju- they want to reunite their people. Anyone who comes North is welcome. But of course, the problem is if you go North from the South, then you can't go back again, right? It's mm-hmm. against the law to go to the North if you're in the South. Uh, that's not true in the North, but it's just obviously <laughs> that you can't get back again because of the regime in the South, but the national security law that was brought in by the occupiers essentially makes it, it's a kind of a thought crime law, right? Expressing any um, uh, sympathy towards, or even almost saying the name of North Korea or its leadership uh, gets you repressed. And what that means, you're not allowed to meet with anybody from the North in any capacity, no matter what you do. So, what that means is the comrades in the People's Democracy Party, who are struggling to build, um, you know, a revolutionary organisation to help with the national national liberation and national reunification of their country, uh, they are not able to coordinate with uh, the comrades of the Workers' Party of Korea in the north. They're not even able to have. Any communication whatsoever. And they know that the tentacles of the Korean security state are everywhere. Even the PDP's leadership in exile in Paris does not meet with North Korean um, diplomats in Europe. Hmm. Like, because they know that's one thing that would get their party suppressed in South Korea if they could so, show any evidence whatsoever of contact. Between the PDP and the Workers' Party of Korea, although they are parties representing the working class of the same nation, mm. that is that that will get them repressed. Um, and they the, the 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 revolutions of South Korea have had their organizations repressed many times over. Uh, the People's Democracy Party is their latest iteration of the legal you know, front of their struggle, uh, which was founded relatively recently. Uh, only in 20, I forget, the, I forget the date, sorry, I'm not brilliant with those things, maybe 2016, something like that, you know, so you can look on Wikipedia and go, oh, they're just a new party, where did they come from? But you have to understand the continuation of their struggle is constantly shifting depending on depending on their conditions.
0: So the actual reality is that whereas we are told in the West that the DPRK is a prison house, is a prison nation, where everybody has to be fenced in, where there is a security state that terrorizes people who talk about reuniting with the South. It's actually the opposite. The opposite is true, which is that the South Koreans are fenced in and forbidden from communicating to the North and forbidden from even looking at it. So the big question is, of course, then, well, what are they afraid of? Um, because we're told constantly in the in the West, and this is the only knowledge you will have of the DPRK growing up, certainly the only knowledge I have was that it was this prison camp that was all there where everybody had already starved to death. There was nobody left. They're all dead. Um, so you, you can't look at it. You can't ever find out anything about it. So it tells us that those who actually run the South Korean security state, in reality, the US imperialists, are afraid of South Koreans' experiencing life in the north because whatever else it might be it isn't the cartoon that is drawn by the propagandists and they're afraid that bitterly afraid that more south koreans might get interested in reunification if any of that repression was relaxed
1: absolutely you know um one has to understand you know the first thing to understand about south korea is it is a colony Mm. It is occupied land. One thing we saw when we were there was US military bases. And they are enormous. Mm. They're like little cities. And in fact, I'm pretty sure, again, uh, forgive me if I'm I'm giving wrong information, I'm pretty sure that the world's biggest uh, military bases away from, you know, domestic soil are the US bases in South Korea. The one in Seoul is absolutely enormous. Mm. And so just to um,
0: clarify there, Joe, just for the audience's benefit, Seoul is the capital of the Republic of Korea, South Korea, and there's a gigantic American military base right in the middle of the city.
1: Yeah, or sort of on the edge of it. But mm-hmm. in the middle of the city, it's got-I mean, it's not funny, but in the middle of the city, there is a um a war museum which commemorates uh, you know, and glorifies the alliance. They call alliance. They mean the occupation Mm. uh, between the Republic of Korea and the USA. And at the moment, they they were having big banners because it's 70 years, I think 70 years since the end of the um, Korean War, the the war which the people of the North called the Fatherland Liberation War, Uh, the genocidal war that was launched by US imperialism to keep its control of the South of Korea, three years long. Um, 4 million Korean people killed in that war, the most horrific, barbaric war you can imagine, one where the USA seriously considered using its nuclear weapons, Um, the one where um, North Korea was helped to survive by the support of volunteer army from China and uh, uh, fighter pilots from the Soviet Union. You know, so it was a moment when the socialist camp really stood together. But if you look at a map, you start to understand why is Korea such a target, because the Korean Peninsula comes down at a point where China and Russia slash the USSR meet, right? And it's a and it's very close. Over here is Japan, right? <laughs> so and it's right in this part of the of the Pacific um, that. You know, if you if you're on that territory, you've got a base that can 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 threaten the whole of the Pacific that you can spy directly on Russia and on China. You can keep an eye on Japan, you know, on the Philippines on, you know, this whole area um, is is make is much easier to dominate. If you've if you've got your foothold there and that's exactly what the us has made sure it's done Geostrategically, it wants korea number one it, i mean it, it definitely wants to crush the example of korean socialism but more than that it wants to keep hold of this location for its base between russia and china these two big uh as it would see enemy powers um it wants to be able to spy on them, to, to threaten them militarily. It wants a justification for keeping all its warships in this part of the Pacific where it is not, right? Mm. The United States is not in this part of the Pacific. Russia is, China is, Japan is, you know, Korea is. The United States is not. So by having this uh, base in South Korea, it can it has a justification for keeping all of its warships there. It keeps nuclear warships patrolling these seas, you know, uh, and, and and brings them constantly into harbour in South Korea, you know, directly threatening uh, the people of North Korea constantly, you know, so uh, when you look at the map, it's a really good idea when these wars are going on, to look at a map and try and understand what role does this part of the, the map play in the thinking of the imperialists who, let's not forget, you know, they, they want nothing less than global domination. And they see the world as a map, not as people, not as countries, not as um, uh, lives. You know, they see very much. You know, I mean, if this bit, of, you know, they talk about geostrategic, right? You know, it's always the imperialists who have this way of looking at the world. They see people, they see the world as a chessboard. They see, they see people and even countries as their, as their pawns. You know, to be moved about so that they can control this, that, and the other. And very much, you can, if you, if you look at a map with that mindset. You can understand why the imperialists are so keen on keeping hold of uh, korea
0: well the other thing that they of course desperately want is that they desperately in fact don't want any korean reunification that's not on their terms in fact any korean reunification at all because if you were to see the korean proletariat both sides of the border achieve reunification on negotiated terms that truly achieve korean sovereignty you would have an industrial powerhouse because you've got all the um the great achievements of the planned economy in the DPRK you have a large amount of industry in the South uh, which has benefited from a certain amount of uh, development of high-tech industries you combine that together then a United Korea ruled by a a coalition government perhaps of the workers party and the revolutionaries from the South Then you have an enormous power that would be capable of throwing off imperialism completely so they don't want reunification if they can't get the collapse of the north they'll take the current status quo which is perpetual colonization of korea and of course their other gigantic military base in the region is on okinawa in japan and so they control these two countries almost completely And yet, when you read about it, it's always presented as, oh, no, we're there to stop, um, you know, Russia slash China slash the DPRK from taking over these countries. Where in actual fact, it's the American imperialists that sit there and put themselves above any law as well. Like, I think in Japan, they can't uh, be prosecuted a lot of the time. They can't even be asked to leave. When the one Japanese premier 10 years ago from the opposition part of the Japanese Democratic Party Basically, tried to get the Americans to le- think about leaving Okinawa. Obama said, "No, you don't get to tell me what to do. We tell you what to do." So this is the reality in all these countries. And I wondered what your impression of um, South Korea is as a country that is effectively colonized and occupied. What effect does that have, do you think, on the on the population and the, the culture there?
1: You've summed it up really well, Alex, in terms of what the U.S. has to lose and what the people have to gain uh when when you think about the prospect of reunification you're absolutely right that a reunified and anti-imperialist korea would be a global game changer it wouldn't just transform the lives of the korean people which it certainly would but it would create an anti-imperialist powerhouse uh, that would inspire and be able to help right, countries all over the world, because, as you say, has the combination of a uh, powerful and experienced anti-imperialist government in the north, with a planned economy and very advanced uh, armaments. Uh, uh, And of course, you know, nuclear armed, which makes it very, very strong and able to defend itself. And then in the south, you've got these high tech advanced chip making capacity, as well as a lot of agriculture um, and other industries, some other industries, which mean that, you know, you put those all together uh, and you and you uh, Unleash the the potential of the, of all those people, and you've got something really that can change the game for the whole world. I think uh, there would be a real um, domino effect of uh, of a revolutionary situation in in Korea. And the thing is, it's it's I think it's closer than than a lot of people would realize. You know, because with the imperialist crisis deepening by the day, their war drive is becoming ever more rampant. It's uh, it's actually. <laughs> You know, when you look at it with a with a human eye, it's insane, their war drive. But if you understand the motivation of capital and the desperation of, of the imperialists, the monopoly financi- financiers to save a system which is coming down around their ears, the only way they're going to do it is to smash all these centers of independence and to get to loot their resources, right? And looting the resources of Russia and China, you know, Korea is seen as a, as a stumbling block. Uh, and and another impediment to that aim and they sort that of, it's like they can't help themselves even though North Korea has made it really clear you know look we want peace we want peaceful reunification but reunification is our right and ultimately we won't be stopped from reunifying Korea one way or another the Korean people will reunify and you know the USA is actually forcing a situation where that's going to be sooner rather than later, you know, it's a bit like with Taiwan and China, if the USA keeps pushing to war with Taiwan, they're gonna get the war they ask for, and it won't have the result that they're hoping for, right? It's gonna have the result of China moving to reunify with Taiwan you know, by force rather than through peaceful negotiations that they've been trying to pursue for decades, but the USA always gets in the way. Exactly the same problem in Korea. The peaceful reunification is wanted by both sides, but the USA constantly acts to get in the way. And now they've put this puppet fascistic dictator, uh, Yoon Sok-Yul, uh, in 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 the government uh in the south um he is absolutely prostrating himself before the war hawks he is ratcheting up the war um rhetoric and the uh, and 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 joining with every exercise that's demanded of him literally every week there's a new joint exercise and more than that as part of this war drive against the north korea and against china uh there is a, a massive drive to remilitarize militarize Japan. Mm. And, you know, the Korean people have a strong memory of the crimes committed against them by the Japanese. Um, and rapprochement with Japan, without a proper acknowledgement of these crimes uh, and some kind of restitution is very, very unpopular. And yet, Yoon Suk Yul is constantly offending the feelings of the Korean people uh, by prostrating himself also before Japan. Mm. And accepting everything that's asked of him and celebrating, you know, the new alliance of Japan, South Korea, and the USA and Japanese troops are, you know, also joining with these anti-DPRK war drills, which are essentially rehearsals for invasion, for nuclear attack, rehearsals for decapitating the leadership of the DPRK. And every one of these rehearsals, the DPRK is forced to respond as if it might be the real thing, because you never know. Mm. when it's going to be so whatever happens in korea you know and it looks to me like they they they're pushing so crazily that something is going to happen before very much longer whoever appears to fire the first shot in that particular moment be in no doubt it's a war that whose blame lies entirely with us imperialism and nobody else you know um and we should we should definitely you know make sure that people in the working class movement and the anti war movement understand that
2: mm. you know
1: when the war breaks out it, it's definitely been provoked by the USA and forced on the Korean people. And for them, they're fighting a just war, a national liberation war and a and a national reunification war, you know. So so that's something that we have to really, um you know, make sure people understand. You were asking, sorry, I, I, I sidestepped your question there, uh, but to come back to your question about what effect it has on Korean society. Well, you know, of course, the people I met, in South Korea are well, the revolutionary people, are the, they're the militant trade unionists, they're the, they're the militant women activists, they're the, they're the militant communists. So I can only tell you things that they told me. I can't tell you my experience of, you know, um, uh, meeting the kind of Koreans um, that I might refer to. Uh, it's, it's slightly secondhand information, because I wasn't there for long enough. But um, what i got the impression is that there's a, a and I, and i meet a lot of the the young comrades in the pdp many of them are are, are students or are former students who dropped their university studies having decided that the giving their life over to the sausage machine of work hard, get good exam results, get a good get a good um, degree so you can get a job so you can have a family and live in one of these battery flats and just keep going keep going keep going under loads and loads of stress and pressure. basically being a cog in this machinery uh, of a of a super oppressed and very um, kind of depressing state was uh, a waste of their lives they wanted to fight for the country's liberation and reunification and they joined the pdp and that's something i'll come back to in a second if i may about the way the pdp actually operates that i think is really important lessons uh for the rest of us in the movement um but they tell me a story uh very much of uh a demoralized and degenerate culture that looks a lot like uh the worst many of the worst elements of western culture you know demoralization kind of screen obsessions um these you know the 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 kind of the 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 the, the explosion of you know gender dysphoria issues that we're having you know alienated young people essentially um and you know explosion in plastic surgeries and you know obsession with um or or pushing of americans slash or the Korean version of American YouTube culture, you know, the kind of K-pop and, you know, weird plastic surgeries people have to make them look the right way. And all of this hyper individualization Hmm. uh, that comes with a very alienated, kind of broken, late capitalist type of society development. And even though capitalism in South Korea is a kind of uh, quite stilted and one-sided, it's because it's a colony, it's been developed in some ways and kept back in others, uh, it has a very lopsided economy, uh, not a decent or not an all rounded capitalist development, you, you'd say. Uh, it's very much an adjunct to the USA. So they, they outsource things they want it to do. And in those senses, it's sort of developed, but in other ways, you know, not at all. Um, uh, but as a colony that that is part of this kind of whole high tech uh, development and plays its particular role there, um there is a and and because of this sort of imported um american culture uh you see very much those same symptoms that we see in the most decayed western countries particularly in the usa and in britain of a kind of alienated individualistic degenerate um broken kind of mindset uh, particularly amongst the younger people
0: Yes, yeah, so that's the um, worst elements of uh, Western culture combined with the uh, sort of weird local spin on it to create this sort of uniquely awful culture that you also see in Japan as well. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, the adopting of all the worst elements of, of American imperialism uh, combined with the local, local degeneracy to create something uniquely awful. Um, not very appealing at all, but this is the the effect of long-term occupation, which is the colonization of, well, the mind as well, to draw from writers like Franz Fanon. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing I wanted to uh, get your uh, take on is that the survival of and the continuation of the Korean Revolution in the North is something which is, in my view, not taken seriously by so-called Marxists in the left are in the western left at all um it's very rare that you'll find anybody who studied it it's very rare that you'll find any opinion on it that is not taken straight from the pages of the guardian or the times so i wanted to just get your take on like the the importance of studying the dprk and its example because this is a country which has survived almost as long now without its former one of its biggest trading partners in the old ussr and through an enormous period of difficulty in the 1990s and yet the revolution there continues and this is probably why it's not talked about except in aggressive terms and why it's not studied except through the medium of propaganda but what do you think about the importance of the DPRK and why those of us in the West should make a proper effort to study and understand it
1: DPRK is hugely significant a country and as you said particularly because they found a way to navigate. First, uh, Kim Il sung was, was brilliant enough to find a way to navigate the Sino Soviet split in a way where he didn't have to take sides. Mm. He remained on good friends, uh, good friendship terms, and, and trading terms with both the Soviet Union and China all the way through that period. Now, that is no mean feat you know, at a time when everyone was demanding loyalty um, to be able to, to to say, well, it's it's not in our interest to to choose between our two important friends. We need both of you. And but we're going to also to keep to our own way. Right. Mm. And, and, and not just try and not not see ourselves as anybody's anybody's lackey or anybody's adjunct. You know, we are doing socialism for Koreans in Korea. Um, of course, we want to be uh in alliance with all the other socialist states we need that alliance against imperialism we have an occupation that threatens us daily you know hourly uh we 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 can't be at odds with our socialist neighbors um and so that was the first kind of real sign of of a particular brilliance about Kim Il-sung's leadership of Korea I think um following that um of course The terrible situation, they call it the arduous march uh, in North Korea when the Soviet Union um, was no more and nor was Eastern Europe. And so suddenly a whole load of trading partners were gone and uh, the people of North Korea were really um, seriously affected by that. Um, They also had some years of difficult harvest, you know, bad weather, compounded these problems. But the the biggest problem I think they had was to do with energy, which is why they entered into negotiations for for peace with the Bill Clinton administration. They they were they 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 made a deal where they would give up developing nuclear weapons if they would be given uh, nuclear light water reactors to get help them get energy so if the usa would deliver these reactors and they would work and the and the country could have energy they said okay we will we will for now freeze our, our nuclear development program uh, of course they fulfilled their side of the bargain and the usa broke its side as happens so many times to so many people and after many years of of trying to push them to, to deliver they said well forget you were doing it ourselves then which you know is the perfectly sensible response but through all of this time you know there's many horror stories about how many uh, millions of people died in North Korea I'm not convinced that they're true
2: mm.
1: I know it was a really difficult time I know that there was um, a kind of rationing that meant some caloric restriction For sure. But my understanding is that because they're a planned economy and a socialist society, they basically spread it out among the people so that everybody, although they had to literally tighten their belts, eat a bit less, have a bit less, they got by. They didn't have a famine. Um, They had hardship and it was really, really hard, but they picked themselves up. You know, despite everything, despite the fact that China at that point, you know, was not being the best friend it could be to the DPRK, Russia was gone, the, the USA was doing everything it could to pile on the pressure and push for its collapse. And it didn't work, you know, and when you consider what a small country it is and how it's been divided and the best of the arable land was in the south and a lot of the industry was in the south, you know, most of the big part of the north is mountains, you know um despite all of that and despite all the difficulty of having to become overnight self sufficient which ask the cubans what that's like right mm. when you've been able to trade with other countries who are your allies and suddenly they're not there and overnight a small nation has to like work out how to be self sufficient of course that is incredibly hard and when you look at the fact that the us the us imperialists and the british imperialists you know the imperialist gang they didn't they say, oh, the people are suffering. How can we help them? They said, Oh, the people are suffering. Good. If they mm-hmm. suffer a bit more, they might get rid of this awful socialist government. Pile on the pressure. You know, so just at that moment when things are getting bad, the imperialists rub their hands and say, How can we make them worse? That's exactly how they used COVID around the world. Look at every anti-imperialist country found that the imperialists used their control of the financial system of the big pharmaceutical companies, etc., to blackmail and coerce and to strangulate countries which were trying to fight the pandemic. Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, you know, they've all got horror stories to tell you of how difficult a difficult situation was made more difficult. Nicaragua is another one by the strangulating effect that was intensified purposefully intensified by the imperialists because they saw an opportunity to make a bad day worse and see maybe this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back and 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 blackmails the people into overthrowing their government i mean this is literally how the imperialists operate you know they don't they don't see people they don't see people's lives they see an opportunity to get their way and you know if if killing off a few hundred or a few million people is the price for getting their way to them literally is of no account, you Mm. know, they just want to to get their way, as I said. So, um, sorry, I've come back to what we were talking about. Did I answer your question? Well, yes.
0: The importance of the DPRK and the importance of us as communists in the West studying its example.
1: Yeah. So, uh, there are many things we can learn from the Koreans and in particular that, you know, I think, almost more than anything, is their spirit. Mm. They have held together their revolution by fo- following the following and studying the leadership of the great Kim Il-sung, who was a brilliant Marxist and a brilliant revolutionary. They have stuck to their own path. They have said, look, we know that a planned economy is the key to, to fighting every battle. And no matter how difficult the imperialists make it for us, if we ditch our planned economy, it will only get worse. So mm. they refuse to do it. And they've understood that fundamental essence of socialism is the planned economy and that with, with a planned economy and with, with the people brought together, you know, you can achieve anything that, you know, despite the difficulties that are, that are put in your way, it might be slower than it would have been. It might be more difficult than it would have been. But ultimately, when you have the people harnessed together, the power unleashed, through a planned economy, it's incredible the things you can achieve and and you know if you if you look at the economic development of the of, of North Korea they've achieved so many things that everybody said they would never do and could not be done mm. but they have been done and they are being done and you know you can't imagine uh you know 70 years ago when General Douglas MacArthur was bombing um Pyongyang into the dust, And he said it will take a thousand years for that city to rise again. And he was really happy about it, you know, obviously. Um, But, you know, by the 1980s, it was a thriving city. If you look at photos of, of, of Pyongyang today, you will see it's a really modern and beautiful city. And what's really interesting, I think, is that we somehow we maintain this sort of ridiculous notion Uh, We, I say, you know, the the imperialist media encourages and we accept workers in the West. We accept this narrative of Korea as this, you know, kind of backward and benighted place where everybody's starving. And yet they're putting up satellites. They're developing nuclear weapons. They have weapons that the USA doesn't doesn't have. You can't do those things without a serious scientific and technological base. It mm. is possible, right? You don't do it with everybody starving and living on beans and then over here there's this amazing nuclear facility. Like, you have to have all the industries that support all of that, the research and development, the, the education system. You do not have this in a bubble over here. And the idea that perhaps it's some um, like, oh, they just have a lot of funding for one section of society and nothing for anything else, it, it doesn't hold water if you stop and think about all the layers of society that have to work. I mean, one of the reasons the USA worries about China and how China's surging ahead is because China has the ability and does, you know, Ch- China creates a huge number of STEM graduates every year, right? Uh, yes, you, you probably can remember better than me what it stands for, right? The technical- Science,
0: technology, engineering and mathematics.
1: There you go. Thank you. Thank um, you. So, with, in Russia's educational system, still has the legacy of the Soviet educational system, right? That hasn't all been destroyed, and what it means is that your average high school student in Russia has better maths than a lot of graduates from top level schools like colleges, universities mm. in the USA, right?
0: Yeah, well, they this is the other thing; it's they don't want that level of scientific technological and engineering and mathematics base being strong in any country because what they're meant to be is a source of cheap labor into the global imperialist system. They're not meant to develop their own technological base, which is why the agents of imperialism in Russia worked so hard to destroy the old Soviet education system. It's why they're so worried, as you say, Jyoti, about China. It's why they're terrified of the DPRK's example, of being able to do all these um high-tech feats of engineering and science whilst under siege because it pre- it gives and an it gives a lie to the uh, what the propaganda of the imperialists that where it is the best of all possible worlds inside the imperial center when in the actual fact that just isn't true it's the true, chinese but... are outpacing the u.s imperialists in a number of areas the russians are in certain areas specifically um uh, hypersonic missiles in terms of weaponry but also now in other areas as well now they're diversifying their economy which is really as you were saying what this crisis is all about the contradictions of u.s capitalism has meant that it actually has hollowed itself out and to rescue itself it now needs to destroy its rivals which does lead me to um final question i wanted to go into with you which is like what is your assessment and what is the assessment of the wider the anti-imperialist platform of where we are now which is that the war in Ukraine has reached a certain point where it is now acknowledged by almost everybody even pro-imperialist observers that this Ukrainian counter-offensive is just a complete horrific slaughter of Ukrainian working-class men mostly and who have been flung into this very well prepared Russian defense which has been prepared for nine months for this. They have no air cover. They have no uh, naval power. They're just being flung uh, like uh, World War I soldiers, basically, but in even worse conditions. So what do we think the move of the imperialists is now? Because the only dispute that seems to be taking place in U.S. circles is, well, do we go after China more or do we continue to go after Russia or do we send Poles to die in large numbers in Ukraine? So what's your assessment of where things stand at the moment and how it fits into that broader anti-imperialist struggle that's going on?
1: Well, sadly, I don't have a crystal ball to say the exact moves that are going to make. What I will say is the crisis of the system is so deep and the predicament of the imperialists is so terrible in terms of the viability and the future of their system and their ability to keep looting the world that this war drive is going to escalate despite the fact that all human logic says back out now while you still can mate
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) it's really obvious that they're that they're losing against russia it was obvious on the first day that they would but the logic is that they're going to keep trying and they will i think they're going to keep grooming proxy forces unfortunately i mean as you said this the the tragedy of the lives that are being lost and the more that are going to continue to be lost while populations allow themselves to be groomed by the imperialists in this way, um, they will throw as many men as they can find into that grinder in the hopes that eventually Russia will start to tire. They, They, you know, we've got a foreign policy establishment if you like now, which since the days of the collapse of the Soviet Union has become so detached from reality you know they were like oh we've won the cold war the enemy is gone we're the kings of everything and they they moved from being kind of cautious in the sense that they had a rival power that they that was a peer a peer competitor if you like uh, that was as strong as they were and therefore they had to have a little bit of um they had to temper their arrogance and they had to be a little bit realistic and they they had to invest a lot in trying to understand their enemy Right? Well, what's happened since then is they, they basically have the people who get promoted are the people who say what they like to hear. They say, we're the only power in the world. No one can touch us. No one can match us. No one can stand up to us. And all we have to do now is wipe out all the remaining centers of existence and we'll just be the number one forever. I mean, that was the plan for the new American century, right? Wipe out every remaining center of anti imperialist resistance. Boom, boom, boom. Seven wars, seven years. That will be done and we'll be the kings of everything forever. Right, no. That was their plan based on the Soviet Union's God and now no one can touch us. That isn't how things have worked out. But the ability of the people who advise the ruling class to understand that is severely limited by the fact that they are all people who got promoted because they said the right thing. And they worked out what the right thing, they got good at knowing what the right thing was to say, what do people want to hear? I mean, how did Liz Truss Truss get to be prime minister? Because she spent 20 years as a proper little bourgeois careerist, learning how to say things that people around her wanted to hear. That's literally what she's good at and what she knows how to do, right? And you find the whole, you know, the State Department in the USA and the White House is full of these types of people. They don't know Russia or China they've got used to being in this echo chamber where they tell each other things Russia's like a gas station parading as a country Russia uh Russia uh, is the has economy the size of Texas you know Russia this Russia that and it sounds good and while they're you know while they they're not having to test any of it out in practice you know they just keep getting promoted it's like the people who write the history books that say you know Stalin killed 60 million people and then someone comes along and writes a history book that said Stalin kills 80 million people it doesn't need proof Mm. He gets a big paycheck and it's like a kind of one-upmanship, right? Well, you feel like the the offices of state and the think tanks in the West have become full of these types of people because of actually the fact that for a little while uh, the US clearly was the number one power in the world. And in its arrogance and and its cocksure kind of sense of oh now i can now we can take the gloves off and just do what we want and no one can stop us um they they let that they let that idea get away from them really and and now that reality is coming back to bite them and the truth of the fact that the anti-imperialist world and block never went away The whole of socialism didn't collapse when the USSR collapsed. A big and very important part of it did. But some socialist countries remained. Other anti-imperialist countries remained. The USA's seven seven wars in seven years didn't work out, did it? How long were they in Afghanistan? 20 years. And who won? Not the USA, not Britain, right? It was the Afghan resistance that won at the end of 20 years. Who won in Iraq? You know, the USA didn't even get control of all the reconstruction contracts in Iraq. You know, never mind they didn't get the government that, you know, was totally under their control in Iraq, you know, so none of these wars, despite everything they've put into them, and despite the arrogance with which they went in, and the fact that they were fighting against countries that couldn't, you know, where they could bomb with impunity, you know, they've got this idea now that fighting a war means taking your bombers over the top of populations that that have no air defences, and no air force to fight back, and just smashing their the, the whole country to smithereens, destroying everything that ke- makes life livable, and saying, haha, Right now we're in charge." Mm. You know they think that's a war. You know they're not prepared for what they're coming up against uh, with the Russians, and particularly they're not prepared because they lost all the people who could have advised them, and anyone who tries to advise them in terms of reality, what they're really facing, is very quickly sacked or demoted or sidelined. You know, so they've they've now got this kind of self-reinforcing echo chamber where they're unable to recognize reality. But that in itself is a symptom of the crisis and decay of imperialism. And the flip side of that is their desperation to save their system and get hold of the loot, which they badly need. They badly need some way to make a profit when all the other sources of profit are drying up and they have so much capital, they don't know what to do with it. Um. They're so desperate for this loot that nothing's gonna stop them to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, chucking their proxies in. Like you said, we, we are seeing how the mentality of World War One is fully alive and well amongst uh, the finance overlords of the world. They see individual humans as nothing, as mention, you know, and totally disposable. You know, remember Madeleine Albright about the, you know, half a million Iraqi starved children, It was worth it. Well, that's exactly how they feel about the Ukrainians that they're massacring right now. It's all worth it. They're sending to be massacred, Um, not massacred. The the imperialists are responsible for a massacre of Ukrainians. Hmm. They're sending them to be mown down by Russian guns. The Russians have tried, I think, very hard not to make it such a a grinding war from the beginning. They didn't want to kill lots of Ukrainians, but the choice has been taken out of their hands. For as long as these people allow themselves to be the proxies of uh, the imperialists, they are essentially signing their own death warrants and the death warrant for their country as well, you know. Um, I I don't see right now much prospect that the, that the same voices who say we should try and find an exit are going to come out on top. I think the people who have committed to this war are just too committed and the, it's it's that thing of you know if you wait for a bus for 10 minutes or 20 minutes you know the longer you've been doing it the harder it is to walk away right because but a bus might come now right? <laughs> yeah, you know, if we just put one more little bit of, of of you want f-16s i mean now they're throwing around the idea that maybe tactical nukes are the thing to give the ukrainians you know so wh- one more escalation will be the one that topples russia's government you know, that's what they're aiming at. If we can topple Russia's government, we can get in there and start to dismember Russia and control, control its resources and, and have a field day with, with everything inside its economy. But trying to provoke a situation where that happens is their aim. What happens to all the people they use in the process? They don't care. Uh, meanwhile, you know, you're right. There's this debate going on in the, in the State Department, and the Pentagon, in the USA, where people are saying, yes, but. We really need to do something, do something about China, right? That's, again, that's the imperialist mindset. They've got to destroy the independence and loot the resources of China. This is a desperate imperative for the imperialists because of the state their system is in. And so, again, there's this kind of, uh, some people say, yes, the route to China is through Russia. You know, weakening Russia, destroying Russia will make China weaker. Therefore, we just put everything into Ukraine and others who say mm, no 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 we need to we need to face china more quickly we need to get on we're dealing with china mm. and ukraine's getting in the way now of that they're worried that with you know with every week month year that goes by where they're not attacking china china's getting stronger and of course they're right about that i mean as far as i'm concerned china's already too strong for the us to do anything uh, too, in terms of bringing it down or or, or just destroying its independence or, or getting hold of its resources. But their imperative is to do that. And the and the crisis in their system is such that, that, you know, they, they can't let up with that drive, no amount of logic and reason can make them see that it's not going to work out, they have to try.
0: Hmm. The crisis of imperialism necessitates ever more aggressive actions which is why understanding imperialism is probably the most, or certainly the most vital task for those of us who are, who are active in the imperialist countries. Josie Brar, as always, it's been a great discussion. And uh, if people want to find out more about the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, we'll put the link to the platform in the show description. But until next time, thank you for joining us today.
1: Lovely. Thank you for having me.
0: And that brings us to the end of this particular episode of the Mark Engels Lennon Institute podcast. If you'd like to find more material from us, you can go over to the website, which is linked to in the show notes below, or you can go over to our Patreon, which contains much of the subscriber-only content that you can access on there. But until next time, thank you for listening.